Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to spend some time studying the Scriptures, investigating the Scriptures in regard to Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel, the saving Gospel indeed, about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out in this series of programs on the Kingdom of God that Jesus' whole mission is summarized under one major heading, It was to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus stated in absolutely clear terms that the reason for his whole mission was to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom. Jesus also said that he sent the apostles just as he had been sent. One would conclude then, logically, that the mission of the church, and indeed of every Christian, is to play his part in the proclamation of the gospel about the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what we find the apostolic church doing. In Acts 8.12, we have a wonderfully clear summary of the activity of those early missionaries. In Acts 8.12, we read that when they believed Philip, preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, people were getting baptized, both men and women. Acts 8 and verse 12. That's an early creedal statement defining in precise terms what it was that people believed before they were ready to be baptized. And the kingdom of God, of course, is the first item on the agenda of their evangelistic preaching. It was when they believed Philip as he proclaimed to them the good news or gospel concerning the kingdom that they were ready to be baptized. Of course, Jesus Christ and faith in his death and his resurrection is included in that evangelistic message, but the kingdom of God is the primary subject. That's because Jesus had always preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God stands for that future time coming on the earth at the return of Jesus in power and glory, when the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and peace will prevail across our earth. That's what's meant by the kingdom of God in the Bible. It's nothing to do with disappearing to heaven to a place beyond the skies, to some region remote from the earth, nothing to do with disappearing there as a disembodied soul. That whole idea of going at death to heaven and hell is not in fact biblical. The Bible knows of no judgment and no rewards and punishments before the second coming of Jesus. As a leading biblical scholar of this century said, it is in Greek mythology that the fates operate at death with their scissors and scales. He points out that we've baptized Greek mythology when we use the words of Wesley, for example, bid Jordan's narrow stream divide and bring us safe to heaven. This, says this scholar, has no biblical basis at all. Christianity does not grant us a passport to heaven. If anything, there's a passport coming from heaven at the second coming when Jesus brings our reward with him. The Bible, says this scholar, nowhere says that we go to heaven when we die, nor does it ever describe death in terms of going to heaven. Now, certainly Christians have rewards stored up in heaven, but the whole point of that teaching is that those rewards are going to be brought from heaven when Christ returns to the earth to establish the kingdom. You see, when you store up money in a bank for retirement, let's say, you don't go to the bank to retire. That money comes out of the place of storage. 
and you enjoy your retirement in another location. In exactly the same way, you can store up treasure in heaven with Christ and with God at the present time. But Jesus is coming back out of heaven to give you your reward, and your reward is in fact the opposite of going to heaven. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to have the earth as their reward and their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5. And Jesus there was simply quoting a famous verse from Psalm 37, verse 11, where the meek indeed were to inherit the earth. The hope in the Old Testament is for the inheritance of the land or the earth, exactly as had been promised to Abraham in the great Abrahamic covenant. And so the psalmist echoes that same great promise of the inheritance of the land. And Jesus does nothing at all to disturb faith in that great land promise given to Abraham. Psalm 37 and verse 11 and Matthew 5 verse 5 show us that the land promise, the promise of the inheritance of the earth and the land, these are the things that Christians are to look forward to. We look forward to the restoration of peace on the earth in the great messianic kingdom to be established and inaugurated when Jesus returns. The biblical scholar I was just quoting refers to this hope of heaven or hell at death as a pagan notion endorsed by so much Christian spirituality. If you're interested in pursuing this notion of what happens when we die, we have a booklet with that title, What Happens When We Die. We'd be happy to send you a free copy for your personal Bible study at home. Please contact us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program or write to us at Atlanta Bible College. Let me explain what has happened in church history to make this whole issue of the future of the Christian and his reward so terribly confusing. The simple fact is that the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven has been replaced by the term heaven. Jesus never offers heaven as the objective of the Christian faith. Jesus did preach, however, the gospel about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And those two phrases are interchangeable. They mean exactly the same thing. The gospel which Jesus preached, his saving message, the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God gospel, is in fact a prophecy of the coming of the kingdom in the future. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 10, the crowds who heard Jesus preach burst forth with this enthusiastic cry. They said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, they were looking forward to the coming of the Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom promised in Scripture. That's the meaning of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. The primary and dominant meaning of kingdom of God and gospel about the kingdom is that future worldwide revolutionary government which Jesus is going to introduce by a divine intervention at his second coming. The gospel as Jesus preached it is always the gospel about the kingdom of God. The foundation of the faith, of the Christian faith indeed, was laid when Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Now what is this kingdom to which Christians are invited by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, to enter the kingdom means much more than to become just a subject of God's kingdom, it means to receive a share in God's kingship, to be one of those appointed to reign. Do you realize that the word saint in the New Testament means 
one appointed to reign in the future kingdom of God with Jesus. Jesus, you remember, speaks of the poor in spirit, that's to say, the Christian saints, as those to whom the heavenly kingship, the heavenly kingdom belongs. But that heavenly kingdom will not be a kingdom in heaven. It's a divine kingdom coming from heaven and having God or heaven as its originator, as the power behind the kingdom. And so those to whom the heavenly kingdom belongs are the same as the meek in Matthew 5, verse 5, who, according to the prophecy of Psalm 37 and 11, are going to inherit the earth. Just as the old Israel of the Old Testament obtained the inheritance of the promised land under Joshua, so the new Israel, the church, comprised of Jew and Gentile alike, are going to possess the earth as their inheritance. Joshua in the Hebrew Bible was the one responsible for leading the people of Israel into the land. Well, the new Joshua is Jesus. In fact, the word Jesus, which is a Greek term, is actually the equivalent of the Hebrew word Yahshua or Joshua. So the new Joshua, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is preparing to lead his people, his faithful people of all the ages, into possession of the earth and the land when he returns. And so we read no less than four times in Daniel chapter 7 that the judgment and the kingdom is going to be given to the saints of the Most High, and the time is going to come when the saints possess the kingdom. Indeed, we read in Daniel 7 verse 27 that the time is coming when all nations under the heaven, that's to say all the nations existing on earth, will serve and obey the Messiah and the saints. You remember the description of the Messiah as he returns to the earth in power and glory in Revelation 19 and verse 15. We read there that from his mouth there comes a sharp sword with which he will smite the nations and he will himself be their shepherd, ruling them with a scepter of iron. Now exactly that same prospect is offered to the faithful saints. In Revelation 2 and verse 26, in one of those famous passages where the Spirit of Jesus addresses the church and promises them certain rewards, we read this, And to the victor, the one who obeys my commands to the very end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will be their shepherd, ruling them with a rod of iron, just as the potter's ware is dashed to atoms, and his power over them shall be like that which I myself have received from the Father. I was reading there from the Weymouth translation, Revelation 2 and verse 26. Exactly the same messianic hope of dominion over the earth is to be granted to Jesus and to the saints. That's what we found in Daniel 7, and that's what we found repeated and confirmed in the New Testament in the very words of Jesus. I'm sure you remember that amazing parable in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus outlined his kingdom program so beautifully. In Luke 19 and verse 10, we read that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what is lost. And Jesus there states that he came not only to die and to be raised from the dead, but to save by his preaching and teaching. And in verse 11 of Luke 19, we read that as they were listening to Jesus' words, he went on to teach them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You see, the crowds rightly understood that the kingdom of God would be based on Jerusalem, that it would have Jerusalem as its headquarters, 
And here they recognized that the Messiah was standing in the proximity of Jerusalem, the capital of the coming kingdom, and so they imagined, not without good reason, that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, in Jerusalem, that is. And that's where, indeed, the kingdom of God will be. Well, Jesus then clarified the situation for them with this beautiful story. A man of noble family, he said, and he was referring to himself there, traveled to a distant country to obtain the rank of king and to return. The parallel then is that Jesus went to heaven at his ascension to receive the power to rule in the kingdom of God, and then he's going to return. And the story goes on like this. And the nobleman called ten of his servants, the servants here are the Christians, and gave each of them a pound. That's the talent and the understanding and the insight and knowledge which we've been given in the gospel and which we're supposed to use to the glory of God and to bring others into the same Christian fellowship. And so the nobleman gave each of his servants a pound, instructing them to trade with the money during his absence. We are then under obligation as Christians to use our talents and our gifts and our resources in the promotion of Jesus' gospel, that is, the spreading of the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. We have to break off our discussion for today because our time is running out. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.